You know, my youngest daughter, Remy, she's a fourth grader. She has a lot of words. She has a lot of questions. And this has gone on now consistently for four years, but she struggles to understand um, the difference between real life and TV life. Do you know what I'm saying? Do any of you have kids who cannot quite make this leap? Um, these two like parallel worlds, they confuse her to no end. And so I can't tell you how many times we've had this conversation, but should we talk about one of her favorite shows like Jesse? Help me Lord. Hey, Jesse, you know it? Hey, Jesse. And she'll be like, mom, is Jesse real? I'm like, honey, she's just a character. She's just a character on TV. And she'd be like, oh, she's a cartoon? And I'm like, no, it's a, it's a real person playing Jesse. And she's like, oh, well, where's the real Jesse? I'm like, honey, there is no Jesse. There's no Jesse. She, oh, she's dead? I'm like, no, honey, listen, no. Jesse's a made up person. It, she's, it's a made up, it's a made up person. It's like, she's a drawing? And I was like, oh, Remy, a human actress plays a fake character um, named Jesse. And, okay, but mom, where does Jesse live? And I was like, listen, honey, okay, hi. Jesse doesn't exist in the real world. And she goes, oh, she's in heaven? And I'm like, you know what? Fine. Okay, you know what? Yes, Jesse's a cartoon that lives in heaven. Okay? Just, yes. You got it. You nailed it. Y'all, she just doesn't get it. She does not get it. She cannot figure out how to reconcile those two worlds, okay? She just can't figure out how they fit together. And you guys, as we move into Matthew 18 this morning, here we have our beloved disciples that we've now journeyed with for all these weeks. And I'm telling you, they cannot figure out how to reconcile these two worlds either. They have this this actual kingdom that they live in, that they understand. And then there's this kingdom that Jesus keeps trying to explain, right? And they're like, oh, it's a cartoon in heaven. I mean, they just cannot get it. They cannot get it. So as you know, if you've been with us in every possible way, Jesus has spent the first 17 chapters right? In Matthew, explaining the gospel to his followers. Like, listen guys, according to the wisdom of God, everything is going to be different than what you know. Everything is going to be different than your expectations. God's kingdom does not look one iota like earthly power structures. And God does not look one iota like an earthly ruler. Okay. You need to really start thinking about these worlds differently. And I mean, we've been in this theme for some time. I mean, Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount already, which turned everything upside down. Every idea they ever hold, he dumped every single bucket. I mean, we've watched him spend long hours and days and weeks and months feeding the hungry, um, healing people whom the rest of the world had already abandoned, okay? Constantly flipping things upside down. And then we saw that he sent his disciples out, not as conquerors, but his very humble teachers, right? He did not send them out to save the political structure. He sent them out to save souls. And then he tells the disciples just a minute ago what sounded like probably pretty bad news, that anyone who really wanted to follow him has to be ready to take up a cross over it and be prepared to lose a life. So he's tried. 
You know, he has tried in every way to begin explaining this kingdom paradigm. Then we get to Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's like facepalm. You know what? I actually really like Mark's account best. Um, Mark gives us a little bit more details. He tells us that the disciples were actually arguing behind Jesus' back about this um, among themselves. And then at some point, Jesus comes up to them and goes, Hey, guys, what were you arguing about back on the road? And they were like, (laughs) Busted. Who is the greatest? Which one of us is the best? You know, I wish I could not identify with this. I wish this had no place in my heart and mind. The thing is about the disciples, like everybody else at the time, they still regarded the kingdom as secular. They, did, they could not unhook from that world, which, of course, was this top-down power system, right? Where the greatest is obviously the greatest, the, the wealthiest, the most powerful, the strongest credentials, the most political sway, the most authority. That's obviously the greatest. It has always been the greatest, and it is still the definition of greatest in our day. Nothing has changed at all. So I always am so gracious to the disciples. I don't think we can really understand how difficult it was to believe in this first generation that Jesus' reign was not going to be activated through the secular systems they understood. It was so hard to get their minds around that. You know, in fact, Jesus had explained his death to them several times at this point in plain language, in very clear language. And scripture tells us these are the following reactions to him. Every time he told the disciples, I'm about to die, I'm about to suffer, I'm about to be um, risen from the dead. Um, Oh no, this won't happen to you. Um, They were deeply distressed. They kept this to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Bless them. They did not understand this statement. They understood none of these things. They did not grasp what was said. Do you see? It's like Remy. Huh? She's dead? Um, So in the absence of understanding, they just, you know, they defaulted to the path to greatness that they knew. And of course, as you and I both know, embedded in that system is hierarchy, right? Because now we need rank. Now, now we need to figure out who's in charge. And I really can't imagine their argument. I just, I love the disciples. I feel so close to them. I can't wait to meet them in heaven. I just think, you know what? I can literally imagine their argument because we've got Peter, right? Peter's sort of the chief. He's the chief speaker. Jesus had already like just recently given him, given him some like keys to the kingdom, whatever that meant, you know? So he's like, I'm up there, you know, I'm up there. I'm going to have a high rank. Um, And we've got Judas. Of course, he's in charge of the money, so surely that's an office, right? Surely that's going to be something or other. And Jude was like Jesus' cousin, so he's like banking on nepotism. Like, come on, bro. Um, I'm thinking about John. I mean, John's precious, the young young disciple John, but, you know, he was Jesus' favorite. He's always calling himself beloved and stuff. Um, He had a shot. Andrew. Andrew's like first called. So maybe there's like a spot for an early adopter. I can hear them like saying, we got some stuff. I got some stuff. I got something on you. 
I mean, I'm at least going to rank higher than you. I feel like I'll be the greatest because of fill in the blank. And so they're influenced by these secular ideas that we still have in which greatness has very little to do with goodness, right? So here's Jesus telling his closest friends, I'm about to suffer and die. And instead of rightly asking how they might have the strength and the grace to suffer with Jesus, they asked instead how they might be positioned to reign with him, right? They wanted the crown, not the cross, same as us. So as I listen to their argument and I listen to their question, I think what they're essentially asking is, is it really a question of the ages in which they were really saying, how can we be bigger, right? How can we be bigger? It's a tough lesson um, because the world sees virtually no greatness in lowliness. And so I'm thinking about Jesus here and he th- he, I, I know he's thinking the teaching here has to be impressive. This matters This is bedrock, bedrock information to the kingdom. And so he's such a brilliant teacher. He looks around thinking, I need a physical symbol. Um, They so don't get this, and I'm running out of time. We are getting close to the cross here. Um, They so don't get this. I need to give them something that they will not soon forget. So he's like, all right, I'm going to show you what my idea of greatness is. Starting in verse 2. He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Love it. So against like this obvious visceral craving for rank um, and perks and authority and rule, Jesus pulls a small child in and says, this is my idea of greatness. And I love it because, I mean, where does a toddler rank in the political world? He doesn't, right? What, what kind of power does a child have in society? None. Okay, this is so not ambiguous. I think what Jesus is essentially saying here is, listen, guys, here is the one excellence that my kingdom is founded on and the one way it will be extended, which is kind of like the excellence of not knowing that you have any excellence at all, right? It's a true, sincere humility. It's not manufactured. It's not fake. Um, It's not just as a means to an end when someone puts it on just to get what they want. It's not even conscious. It's just sincere. And, And I love it because the world thinks that greatness means bigger. But Jesus says it actually means little. Jesus calls us here, and I think this is an important distinction, um, not to be childish, but to be childlike, okay? And there is a difference. Um, at ANC, just for those of you who are visiting, we just, sometimes we ask questions and we actually want an answer. So that's one of these times. Um, 
Let me ask you this. When it comes to being childlike, what, what does childlike posture look like in a grown-up Christian? And there's way more than one right answer here. So I'm not looking for one thing, but what, do you, what does it mean to be childlike as a mature believer? Innocent. I, that's actually a synonym for it in the original language, Susie. Teachable. Trust, trusting. Yes. I'm sorry. You, everybody uh, just went to like one big sound. Forgiving. Forgiving. Yeah. Dependent. Unassuming. Yes. Unassuming. <laughs> Say what you're doing there. Yeah, I had that in my notes too. Wonder. Just wonder. Available and hopeful. There's so many good things about a kid. There's just so many. When you look at the way the kid deals with the world, I think in so many ways we lose that bit by bit into adulthood and we become the opposite. Cynical, bitter, afraid, distrustful. And we are, whatever was precious and wonderment and childlike in it just slowly gets eroded. You know what, for me, because there's a difference between true humility and fake humility, you know, um, I can discern true humility in someone by how it makes me feel when I'm around them. Do you know, do you know what I'm saying by that? Like, what does it feel like to you or, or what response or emotion does it trigger in you to be around someone who is truly, sincerely humble? This is the time when you actually say an answer. Comfortable. Comfortable. That's a great. That's a great answer. I heard something up here. In awe, because it's rare. Interested. Interested. Yeah. Safe. Huge. What'd you say? Connected. Connected. Connection. I think safe is big. I, I just, everything you're saying is right. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was, um, I was up on the Today Show and I was, I was getting um, makeup done. I don't know what to say. Um, and so I'm in the chair and I'm talking to the guy who's doing my makeup and, and I asked him, I said, what? Tell, talk to me about this show. Like, Darius Rucker was on that day. And I'm like, what do you think about Darius? And, um, and he's talking about the people that come on the show, which is kind of everyone, from statesmen to singers to writers to whoever. And um, he said, oh, he's so kind to us. He was like so kind to every single person on the staff, speaks so nicely to everyone who's behind the scenes and invisible. And I'm like, really? That is awesome to hear. I said, opposed to what? As opposed to what? And he says, well, the worst ones that treat us the worst, the staff, the ones that treat the staff the worst, are the ones that have had one big hit. <laughs> and they come in like riding on the wings and just entitled and rude and ugly. And I just said, oh, that is so interesting. He said, um, he said sometimes when people like Darius come in and speak to us and ask us questions and, and we're not invisible to them, he said to me, I just, I feel valued. 
And I thought, yes, that is what somebody who is humble makes you feel like. Like you are valuable and they care about you and you're important to them. And I want to point something out in the scripture because I think it's, it's necessary and it's also relieving. Jesus said, unless you change and become like a little child. And he didn't say that lightly. Unless you change. I think what he's teaching us here is there is a conversion necessary to this kind of spiritual heart and soul. Um, I like the example that he's using here with this, with this toddler because obviously it would be physically impossible for them to change from grown men into a child, into children, um, right? So Jesus picked this very unworkable transformation. And I think his point here is this. You cannot convert yourself into this type of humility, Okay, only God can give you a new heart. You submit yourself, but this is holy, supernatural work that God can do in you, which is a relief because it feels so impossible sometimes to throw off all the things that we've adopted as grown-ups, our cynicism and our bitterness and our fear. I just think I can't be childlike. This world's too dangerous, right? I need to self-protect. Um, I cannot be that vulnerable in the world. Um, so therefore, I don't think I can. I don't think I can make myself be childlike. And I think what Jesus is saying here is this is God's work. God can do this in you. He transforms. And so to me, humility is this like blaring clue that someone actually knows Jesus, right? Because I'm thinking, oh, he did that in you. He has done a work in you and I see it. It's just a chief indicator that someone belongs to him. So this is God's heavy lifting. However, it does require much submission from you and I to the process. And I'm very afraid to tell you that at 41, I think it never ends, this process. I keep thinking I'm just going to be done with that and just onward with something else. But it It's just a continual submission to the process of humility. Matthew Henry wrote it like this, and I I like his words here. He said, besides the first conversion of a soul from a state of nature to a state of grace, there are after conversions from particular paths which are equally necessary to salvation. I like that because I thought about that a lot this week, and I think in the body of Christ, every single small move that you and I make toward humility is a conversion. Every single one, every time in a, in a conversation, in a moment, in an environment, in a relationship that we choose to reject the lie of me bigger and instead choose little, we are more converted to the kingdom every time. It's like this killing of pride thing. It just pretty much involves a thousand daily deaths, right? And they're hard and they hurt and they will actually cost us something. In fact, verse eight and nine really clue us in to that. I appreciate Jesus speaking directly and truthfully to us here. In verse eight, he says, listen, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Just Jesus being pleasant. (laughs) You know what I appreciate about that instruction? 
Sin and pride, specifically, can be as dear to us as our hands and our feet and our eyes, and we literally cannot imagine our life without it, right? We've, I said it a minute ago, without that, step, without that protective outer, we feel exposed, and we feel too vulnerable. And like, you know what? If I start dying to pride and I start taking on true humility, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to be hurt. I'm going to be last. I'm going to be left behind. I'm going to be exploited. And so rather than cut it off in a painful process of dying to self, we try to live with it. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that the cost of staying attached to our pride is higher than the cost to convert to humility. It doesn't seem like it. That's not what the world tells us. That is not the system we know. But we can trust Jesus on this. Gosh, we need real converts in our cities, you guys. We need real converts to childlike humility in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in this world. So you know what? This week, as you and I go, as we go into our places, let's just, we'll just break it down into a really simple formula. Let's ask ourselves this week, how can I be little in this, whatever this is? How can I be, how can I be little in this, in my work? How can I be little in my place of authority? How can I be little um, in my conversations? Um, how can I resist the impulse to be big? Right? What specifically can I do? to lay that down and die to it this week, to cut it off. And ask maybe this, where am I working toward big because I'm afraid of being little in that space or in that relationship or in that context? And I want to say that maybe some of you are in here this morning, because gosh, I just, I've just, my brain's been so on this this week, and you find yourself in a kind of a big space. I feel like this, okay? I feel like I'm in a big space that I didn't plan for, that I didn't necessarily ask for, but here I am. And so this kind of scripture makes me feel conflicted and worried. Like, what do I do? I do? We have a lot of people in this room that live in big spaces. We have business owners and we have nonprofit directors and we have people in all sorts of authority and position. And none of us want to gain the world and lose our soul. None of us want that. And so I think even if you find yourself in a big space, what we ask is, how can I be small in my big space? I think according to Jesus, that small is more about character than context. I think with the transformative power of the Holy Spirit, we can be small anywhere and everywhere, with anyone and everyone. Listen, there are so many upsides to being small according to Jesus. This is some really good news for us, you guys. Um, According to verse 4, the humblest Christians are the very best Christians. They're most like Christ, and they're highest in his favor. That's a good start. According to verse 5, they very best actually carry the presence of Jesus which means they're constantly surrounded by mercy and glory and spirit. You can't put a price on walking around in the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
And listen, evidently, they are fiercely guarded. Look at verse 6. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Well, I think this is both literal and I think it's metaphorical. Literally, as he's speaking of real kids, real children, Jesus is saying that sins against children are so heinous and the ruin to their soul and their hearts and their minds is so great that honestly, that person would be better off who abused that kid to attach himself to a 1,000-pound stone and drown himself. Listen what he went on to say. Look at verse 10. See, I mean, he's, he's obsessed at this point, okay? See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. I appreciate Jesus' passionate defense of children so much here. There's a lot of people in this room. And you know what I know for a fact? Some of you were injured as a child. You were hurt. You were abused. You were left. You were not loved well. And you were not loved right. And you were maybe even harmed. I want to tell you something about you sitting in here. We can trust Jesus on his word about angels in this passage that they have a special charge concerning children to minister for their good, to just to pitch their tents around them and bear them up in their arms. It's suggested here by Jesus that those who do anything by which one of his little ones is harmed It not only contradicts the will of God, but it highly provokes him. And there will be a reckoning. And I just want this to comfort any little ones among us who have just simply grown up. Your witness is in heaven. I want you to hear it from Jesus today. It was not God's will that you were ever harmed. And you have the entirety 
of God and all his angels on your side. And I'm here to tell you that defense and justice are yours for eternity. And metaphorically, Jesus tasks us yet again to care deeply and passionately about all who are little in this world. You know that there are those who will never battle the urge to be big and powerful and great because their lives have ensured their small place. The poor, the imprisoned, the oppressed and the enslaved, the abused, the refugee. These are the little ones in our world. But Jesus said in verse 7, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through who they come. The obstructions and oppositions to faith and wholeness and wellness plague mankind. You and I know if you have eyes and ears and a television set in the internet, it's the ruin of millions. Millions. probably saw a picture this week of the three-year-old boy who washed up to shore in Syria, just drowned in an attempt to flee literally unimaginable persecution and destruction. Died with his brother and his mother, only his dad lived to tell. just trying to escape war-torn, ISIS-controlled Syria. I mean, these are desperate people. 11 million people displaced, dying, starving, forgotten. Everyone's closing their borders to them. That little boy's dad said in a press conference this week, a regular dad. He's just a regular kid. He's the same as us. They're not different. He said, now I don't want anything. Even if you give me all the countries in the world, what was precious is gone. Woe to the world. Listen. We are to be small And we are to protect the small. It is what we are here to do. It's when we are most like Jesus and most attract his favor and protection when we side with the little, God sides with us. So this week, 
in our sad world, in our cities, maybe just on our streets, maybe just in our neighborhoods. Let's ask, how can I side with the little ones? How? Specifically, who can I welcome in? And according to Jesus, in doing so, welcome in his very presence. How can I fight against the downfall of those who are so precious to God? What specifically can I do this very week to honor and love and protect and serve those whom heaven most respects, even if the world does not? The upside is that if verse 7 tells us, woe to the world when the small are abused, then can you imagine how much peace to the world we would experience when they are honored, when they are protected, when they are valued? I want to wrap it up. I'm going to wrap it up with the two worlds that we started with at the beginning. So hard to reconcile. It's so hard to reconcile our world with God's world. And I look through this passage today, and it's clear, same as it's always been, our world values the greatest, the highest, the 99, the seen. But Jesus could not possibly be more clear that what he values, the littlest, the lowest, the one, the lost. So I think there's a lot for you and I to take heart in this morning from this passage. First of all, take heart because for some of you, I want you to hear this. There's so much value in the small places in our lives. Okay, some of you, the work that you're doing feels to you invisible. It feels small, this effort that no one sees, that nobody is noticing this little quiet obedience that you are offering to you feels small when it looks like everyone around you is doing big and doing splashy and doing important stuff. I want you to know something. Smallness is the substance of the gospel, okay? And there is value in it. Humility is honored in the heavens and it attracts the very presence of Jesus. I am telling you, if your work in your life feels small, you are in the center of the bullseye of the kingdom. You continue to do your work with joy and confidence. And I also want some of you to take heart this morning. If you feel low, if you feel lost, if you feel like that one while the 99 all have their act together and they're all happily milling about in their tribe. Or maybe you love somebody who is the one and they are lost and you are longing for them to come back. I want to tell you, if that's you, God rejoices over your search and rescue. He is for you. And he is very much after your safe return. Just know it. You're treasured and you are the cause for much joy. So look for your good shepherd because I tell you what, he is looking for you. Last, I just want to tell some of you among us to take heart because we have a lot of people in this room. I told you these are some of the best people in the city. 
and you spend your life protecting and advocating for the little, for the vulnerable. It's what you do. Some of it is in your home. Some of it's in your work. Some of it is in your volunteer space. It's in your passion. It's in your burden. I want you to hear from Jesus that even when your work for the little on behalf of the vulnerable, if it feels futile or frustrating or endless, when offenses have broken them that were not your doing, and their healing seems elusive or impossible or like you'll never get to the bottom of it. Please know that you are doing the most important work of the kingdom, according to Jesus. The most important work there is. You have welcomed Jesus himself in, and according to him, you've actually filled your entire life with true greatness. You And those that you care for, you are on the top of the pile. God will continue to make you able. Stay the course in his good pleasure. God, continue to make us small. Will you pray with me?